Hi, and welcome to this episode of Highways and Hedges. Highways and Hedges is a podcast of the ministry Agros, and Agros exists to find, train, and support small-town pastors in northeast Kansas and northwest Missouri. I have a guest with me today, and I'll introduce him in just a second, Um, but just in case you haven't listened to any recent podcasts, I want you to know that right now we are just... I'm asking people to reflect with me on the Agros conference from last fall. Um, want to promote the messages. Um, we had uh, some local pastors put in a lot of time to, pre- to prepare messages for that conference. And I uh, just want to encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast, to jump over to our website. Um, you can see that um, in the description of this podcast there. And uh, listen to these messages, because we were really blessed by the men who did that, and I just want to promote that. So we're going to do that a little bit in this episode, um, but we've got um, a special guest today, and so we're going to talk about a few other things first. My guest is is Stephen Whitmer. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Great to be with you. Honored to be on. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, Stephen, you want to tell us a little bit? Um, I've got to know you some through Zoom calls and emails um, over the last year, but would you mind sharing with everybody else listening just a little bit about your family, the church you serve in, and the town that your church gathers in? Yeah, I'm a native New Englander, so I grew up in north central Maine in a really, a very, very tiny town of, of six or 700 people. And I now live in Pepperell, Massachusetts, which is uh, still a small town, but larger than where I, I grew up. Where Pepperell is about an hour northwest of Boston and just a few minutes from the New Hampshire border. So we're kind of north central Massachusetts. And I pastor a church called Pepperell Christian Fellowship, which is a non-denominational church right on Main Street in Pepperell. My wife and I, my, my wife's name is Emma, and the two of us have been here in Pepperell for almost 14 years um, uh, pastoring the church. And we have three children. Our oldest, Samuel, was born just after we moved here. So he's 13 years old. And and then um, a daughter, Annie, and another son, Henry. So Annie is 11 and Henry is 9. So yeah, we, we, uh, we love where we are. And God had to make it super clear to us to get get us to where we are. <laughs> Uh, but that's 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 part of the story for me um increasingly loving the kind of ministry he's called us to yeah right um because you you say you grew up in new england but you didn't you did not go to school there you were not there was not like uh yeah you haven't just always been there you were brought back there right you went to a school in minnesota i think yeah i I actually uh, had felt called to New England, even though I was doing education outside of New England. I, I was at Wheaton College for undergraduate work in Illinois and then Minneapolis for a couple of years and came back to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary for seminary training. And so New England was always um, sort of the, the goal uh, for pastoral ministry. But I was thinking more Boston or some kind of urban center um, not not really the kind of context that we wound up in. And God yeah. just made it crystal clear to us about 14 or 15 years ago that this is where he wanted us. Yeah, great. I We could probably talk about this way too long, but I'm just curious, as you said that, what um, what made an urban context kind of the default for you when you were thinking that's where you're going to end up? Was that a, did you have a deliberate desire for that, or did you just kind of think that's just where you go after you get trained to be a pastor? Yeah, no, it was it was a desire, and I think there was probably some mix of 
vainglory um, because I mm-hmm. thought that's that's where I could go to make the biggest impact, and also like genuine kingdom desire. Um, yeah. When when I came through seminary at Gordon Conwell, very I, I think it, it was very much in the air, kind of like it was in within broader evangelicalism that if you wanted to influence the culture and you wanted to promote the gospel, the best place to do that was upstream, you know, and then then let the influence flow downstream. Uh, so you go to the urban centers and you reach the creative classes. So that's that's the way I came to New England ministry, and that's the way I was thinking about how I wanted to, to spend my life. And we got pretty far along in the process with two churches when we were looking for churches, this, this one that we're at now, and another church that was closer into the city, and on paper looked like a great career move. And God just pretty decisively through the Council of Friends and kind of what we were seeing and um, prayer times with him and talking to each other moved us away from that one. We pulled out of that process and, and cast our lot with Pepperell Christian Fellowship. And then that's a longer story about how the search committee chose us and how, you know, it was, it was, it's amazing. It's, um, we, yeah. I, I'm still hearing that story from people at the church 14 <laughs> years later, learning, wow. learning more about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Praise God for, for his leadership there and taking to Pepperell. And all, just so neat, too, that you've been there that long that your kids call Pepperell home. That they've Yeah, never that's all they know. Home. That's right. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, I would love anybody listening right now to, um, if you're at all interested in just thinking critically about ministry in small towns, um, Stephen wrote a book, and that's actually what got me connected with him. The book's called a big gospel in small places. Um, and it's, it was when I first started making moves toward wanting to do ministry in small places, that book came up, read it, and I was served really, really well by the book. So Stephen, thanks again. I I know I've thanked you before, but thanks for writing that. Did that book, um, did you have that already on your radar when you first went to Pepperell or was it partly your own processing of just trying to be faithful where you're at that made you realize that we needed a resource like that. Yeah, the the latter very much. I mean, I, I when I when I came to Pepperell, I had no no thought of writing a book like that. Um and it was really just kind of a about 5 or 6 7 years ago maybe I started to think more self-consciously to be, become more self-aware of the kind of location I was in. And, um, and so this is sort of a, the book is a record of some of my struggles, some of the hardships of, um, just kind of figuring out how to do ministry where I am. And also a record of deepening joy, um, where Mm -hmm. I am and, Mm -hmm. and discerning God's call and embracing God's call. So yeah, the book really bubbled up out of years of ministry that had come before it and was also for me, a means of thinking more deeply about these kinds of ups and downs that I was experiencing, how to process those, how to think biblically about them. Even for me, when I'm feeling inadequate or insecure, reminding myself biblically and theologically of God's call and why he would call me to my church, my town. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, That's what I think the book had a lot of good, you've got a lot of good research in it, a lot of really good 
biblical teaching to help us think about that specific context. I think the way it hit me, and I, I want to read a quote for a second, just ask you to reflect on it from your book. But I think the reason it hit me where it needed to is because I was thinking about small town context specifically. So I was, I was approaching that ministry more as just a demographic. And I felt, um, I, I don't know if attention is the right word. I felt my heart kind of going two different routes. I felt, um, you know, I grew up in a, a town of about 300 or 400 people. And there was a lot of nostalgia you know, you always remember things better than you actually lived them. And so reflecting back on that time, it just felt like, you know, that was that was before life had problems. That's where things are <laughs> slow and people are nice. And um, and so felt this um, idealization. I'd, I, I was idealizing it. Um, and then more recent memories of being in small places and feeling more like, no, this is a a dead end. This is where if I go to that, that's just a, a career failure. That's a, that's where nobody cares about anything. And I care about things a lot. So I need to go to a bigger place. I felt kind of those both in my heart. And I just really appreciated the, um, in some ways, an indictment to both attitudes um, from your book. And so I'll, I'll read the quote here. You You write very briefly, we cannot love or serve what we idealize or despise. Um, and I felt like that was what I was, that's kind of what was either pulling me or pushing me from rural ministry was that I was either idealizing it uh, or I was despising it and that was pushing me away from it. So I was just curious, since we've got you here personally, could you share any examples of those temptations that have been barriers to your faithful ministry in Pepperell, both that idealizing aspect or the despising aspect? When I say that, uh, what I mean is that if we idealize something, we basically say, hey, there's no problems here. It's perfect. You know, it's yeah. it's uh, it's just the way it, it's meant to be. And if you if you don't see problems, you can't actually love by meeting needs and digging yeah. in and, and addressing those problems. And then on the other hand, if you despise it, you think it's it's not worth investing in. <laughs> yeah. It's it's you know below you, it's beneath you, so, and yeah. you can't you can't love something that you feel smugly superior to. I, I yeah. feel like as though probably it's it's harder to idealize something once you're actually living in it because you're you're up close and personal, and yeah. you see the dirt on the snow on Main Street in Pepperell. <laughs> you know if you're. If you're living somewhere else and you're thinking about pepperel in the winter, it's all white, white, beautiful snow. But, you know, this time of year, I'm looking out the window right now and I can see uh, I can see all the dirt and sludge and slush. And yeah, maybe that's a metaphor for living up close to a place where, you know, you can see the rough edges and uh, more than the, the kind of weather beaten buildings, you could see the lives of people. So 14 years here means that I don't think I I do struggle very much with idealizing. I think maybe at one point, maybe when I was living in Minneapolis or uh, some other other place, maybe I would have idealized small town quintessential New England villages. But my bigger struggle, I think when you're when I'm actually here would be um despising. I think you know that that might be my natural tendency, and the spirit of God um, has has given me a love for this place, 
Um, but, I, but I also feel like part of why I wrote the book was because I, I need gospel reasons to see significance uh, in what I'm doing and where I'm doing it. And because I, I've kind of drunk deeply from the wells of the culture that say, you know, I go down into Boston and it's an exciting place to be. And mm-hmm. there are cutting edge people there. And in some ways, um, there, there are parts of it that are more me. You know, I, I love reading and I love kind of the intellectual stimulation. And, you know, there, there's, there's kind of culture available in the city centers that, that there's just not in, in my town. Um, yeah. You know, we, we, we don't have fancy shops um, we have pizza places and <laughs> I yeah. like pizza. We order from the pizza places, <laughs> but, um, it, there, there's, there's kind of elements of, um, I, I think if you're, if you have, um, you know, if, if you, if you've drunk that, that cultural narrative that, um, lots of education and lots of resources, um, are, or that that's what's really precious and good coffee shops and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then you come to Pepperell, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't look all that great. And yeah. the people here are pretty normal. I think of myself as a very normal person. Um, yeah. but I, I'm not, I'm not kind of rubbing shoulders with, with culture makers, um, yeah. at a broad, at a broad scale. And so, I, I think that's the bigger challenge. It's to to kind of look at the at the smallness of my context, to look at the normalness of my context, and just to think eh, how much of a difference is this making. Um, yeah. And and I hasten to say I love where I live and I love the people I'm living around and I love my church and I think that's the work of the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. Um, not to despise them or the place and not to despise myself either because I'm a normal person and I'm not the world's greatest preacher and I'm not the world's greatest pastor. Sometimes I'm a lousy preacher and a lousy pastor. And so I I need the gospel affirming me in Christ and I need the gospel showing me that the, the town I'm living in, even though it's not Boston, um, is precious in the sight of God. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's really good. I know this could also take us on a a long tangent, so maybe we can't chase this down all the way. But do you think that it's um, is the principle here? The grass is always greener on the other side. That's one way to look at it. Is that we will always idealize where we're not um, because we're not actually there, or is it a little bit more? Is it dealing with the issues a little bit more? Um, robustly if we say actually no there is more in a bigger city you know there is uh, so take let's take philippians 4 and say paul had to learn contentment when he had need and when he had abundance he recognizes there were places and times in his life where there was more there was a, a richness to that experience and even he says he had to learn how to face that he had to learn to face the temptations that were unique to abundance and he had to learn to face the temptations unique to poverty and I, so i'm just wondering would you say you know is it is it mainly just a grass is greener if you went to boston actually you'd get there and after a while you'd start despising it too because we are just that's that's how sin works in us wants us always to be discontent with the lord has given us 
Or is there an added layer that's worth recognizing? Well, there there is more in a material sense there. In 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 the world's eyes, there is a more there. And if all you see are with natural eyes, you know, you will always lust for and be satisfied by chasing after those things. But there's there's not more gospel there. I have the yeah. the gospel that I have here is where my contentment and joy needs to come from. Mm-hmm. And so if I went there and that distracted me from the gospel, that would be far more dangerous to my soul than staying here and having to constantly be, you know, brought back to my need. Yeah, you said that beautifully. I really appreciate that, Joe. And I and I think it's probably both. I think there is some degree to which w- whenever we are somewhere, we 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 might tend to idealize the places where we're not because we're not up close and personal. We don't we don't see the the drawbacks as well. But I, I think it is just yeah, objectively speaking, there are resources, there are opportunities in clustered populations that there are not in scattered populations. And obviously there's a flip side of that too. Like I, I live in a place of great natural beauty. And I, the, the woods are all around me. I can go, you know, walk a quarter of a mile and kayak on the pond near our house. I love those things. And you can't do that in the same way in the city yep. centers either. But I think it's, I think it is true that there are just, there are opportunities that are not available in a place like Pepperell. And, and I think even more so in a place that's more isolated than Pepperell. We're an hour or so from Boston, so we can drive down there and avail ourselves of those opportunities. But, you know, there, you're probably in a place, and there's certainly many people in places where you, you need to drive three or four or five hours to, you yeah. know, to, to get to, um, a, a, I don't know, like a, a, a play if you want to see a live performance or something like that, yeah. you know. And, and I think it is. I think that's that is going a little bit deeper. Just to say, hey, that's a reality, um, and you you have you should recognize that reality. Um, we we tend to have a, an easier time thinking. Well, it's still worth it to go there and to surrender some of those things you would love. If the place is overseas, we kind of get that. Um, yeah. It's it's a little bit of a of a harder stretch, I think, for people to to say, well, I'm going to stay in the United States and I'm going to give up some of those things I might naturally like. Uh, yeah. we, we have a harder harder time. Other other folks might have a harder time understanding that yeah. <laughs> and appreciating yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's really helpful. Like I said, I could <laughs> follow that conversation for a long time and do my soul some good. But I, want to, I do want to talk a little bit about a ministry that you've started that relates to this as well. Um, uh, I don't actually know time-wise if the book came first or the ministry came first, but you've started uh, Small Town Summits with some other men. Can you tell us what that is? And then really quickly, just to segue into um, the la- second half of our discussion, from what you know of the Agros Conference, do you think there are similarities between what you're doing with Small Town Summits and what we tried to do with our um, Agros Conference? Yeah. yeah, Small Town Summits came first. The book grew directly out of Small Town Summits. Okay. Okay. Uh, in fact, the various chapters are basically taken from the talks I was giving at those summits. So cool. uh, in, uh, it was about five years ago, I think. I think it was in 2017 that another guy, David Pinckney, and I sat down together on the second floor of a coffee shop and said, hey, we, we want to reach, we want to encourage, we want to resource and strengthen small place pastors and lay people in New England, six states of New England. 
And uh, out of that conversation came uh, a gathering of pastors and lay people in New Hampshire. And the, the vision was to, to gather folks, um, to, to think through like, what, what's a contextualized approach to encouraging people who are ministering the gospel in small places? So uh, how can we contextualize that rather than abstracting them from those places and require them to take a, an airplane flight half a country away, sit in a huge auditorium with 5,000 people, hear things that don't directly apply to their context, and then pull up out of that, fly back home, and translate what they've heard into that context? How can we validate who they are and what they're doing in a contextual way? And we just thought, okay, well, this is not this is not fancy or rocket science, but let's make it a one-day gathering so they don't need to stay away overnight. It's it's less expensive that way. A lot of these yeah. folks are bivocational. If they if they are doing this full-time, they might not have a conference budget. They might be, probably are solo pastors if they're even a full-time pastor. So it might be harder to get away for three days in Chicago. So let's let's do it close to them. Let's make it one day. Let's make it affordable. Uh, let's do it actually in a small church in their small town. Let's come to them and not require them to come to a big sub suburban church or one, a place that doesn't look like where they minister. Let's yeah. not have a professional level worship band doing the music. Let's make let's make it excellent, but let's make it look something like what they might experience on a Sunday. Let's not fly in big speakers, big name speakers to draw them. Let's have the people who are leading and speaking in the plenaries and in the breakout sessions, let's have them be practitioners who are also small town pastors and also yeah. not famous people. And so, so it was really, small town summits was an effort, effort to contextualize and also to validate and say what you're doing matters. And yeah. we want to communicate that by asking you and others like you to be the speakers and by doing it in a church in a town that looks like yours. Uh, we want we want there to be ongoing togetherness and relationships. So we'll make it regional and local rather than, you know, one New England based, uh, you know, get get everybody driving from from a long way away. And I think based on what our conversations and what you're doing with Agras, there's lots of similarity and overlap uh, between that. I think there's I think you do desire to to be contextualized and to encourage people about the significance of what they're doing. And that, that's really been the heartbeat of small town summits. Um, so we do these gatherings. We have a podcast and we we have pastors writing original articles. We do an original article every month on small town ministry. So there's kind of a library of, of growing resources and a desire to multiply our gatherings, local gatherings, um, throughout New England. So that's those are the, the directions we're heading. Yeah. Uh, what's what's the website? Smalltownsummits dot. I think it's com. <laughs> I can never remember whether it's smalltownsummits dot org or smalltownsummits. Yeah, it is smalltownsummits.com. Okay, great. And the name of your podcast? It's the STS podcast, Small Town Summits podcast. So you can find the podcast by going on on the website or just where, wherever you get podcasts. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Very good. Yeah. I'd definitely love to recommend that to anyone listening here too. Um, one of the things that I feel a little bit, um, I don't know, um, 
yeah, I feel a burden to communicate this, and I'm not sure how to bring it out in when I'm trying to gather people at the Agros conference for encouragement and support. I think what we do feels a little underwhelming um, because of some of the things you're talking about. You know, I'm I don't want really to bring in professional speakers, and not I'm I'm not against those. I've been served very well by that, and there's a place for that. But what I'm trying to do is stir up ambition among those who are here with what God has given us here to be faithful and to make that the reward, not necessarily giftedness, but just the grace that we have been given to be supremely pleased with that and to use that. Um, but it makes it difficult to show people that it's worth gathering when, when, you know, when you're not putting on a, 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 a fantastic conference, but just a, you know, a very ordinary local gathering of local pastors and church members and one of the things that sometimes bugs me is, you know, this is something your book brings out too. There are a lot of material disadvantages in small towns, you know, a lack of resources. You you really opened my eyes up to how population decline doesn't only take away resources, but also just kind of destroys morale as people move away and towns get smaller, especially younger individuals. Um, and it's easy to make those things the problem the church is facing like to think okay those are our problems how do we fix that you know it's really easy for a small town church to think you know if we could just get two young families to to come to our church then we'd have it we just need some younger folks around we need their energy and enthusiasm and, and we'd grow so when your gatherings are not offering those resources you're not going to give money to hire more staff you're not going to give them things they probably haven't heard before you're not going to give them the young families to reinvigorate their church. Why come? What's the conference or the summit going to do um, that's going to address what those, those feel like kind of the pressing, urgent problems for small towns? What's yeah. what's the summit or conference going to do? How yeah. does it relate to those? I think I think the folks who have come have come because of their desire for fellowship and connection and also their hunger for the gospel. So we just mm-hmm. try to make those gatherings gospel rich. <laughs> we we try to also make them practical. But a, a, a big a big thing that we found is I feel like in the last probably 7 or 8 years there has been more of a focus on small town ministry. There's been more of a kind of a, an awareness that this is a a kind of ministry that it's it's valuable but it's also challenging and that uh, we are we are doing a kind of ministry that requires certain skills and has certain challenges and also certain opportunities and when you get in the same room with other people who are in a similar context, you can empathize with each other and you can spur each other on to love and good works in small towns and so we you know one, one of the things we 've realized is that simply having something called a small town summit in a small church in a small town is enormously validating for guys. Um, Because we are saying kind of like we see you, God sees you, he's not overlooked you, he knows what you're doing is significant, it matters to him. And I think people have responded to that. Um, I think they've, they have felt like, hey, uh, we are not being overlooked. And so we're intrigued to come and see what they're talking about and th- think about best practice in, in small town ministry. Uh, 
Um, and also, like by just by the grace of God, I think God has has allowed us to to be biblical and to be richly theological. And people are, I think, they're hungry for that too. The people who have come to to our small town summits, they they want Bible, um, they want a vision of a big God. They don't yeah. just want practical tips on how to do yeah. ministry, and they don't just want to bemoan that people have forgotten about them, <laughs> and that you know they they want more than that. That that's 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 not a message that's big enough to sustain people and carry them, you know, to get around yeah. and gripe gripe for a day. Uh, they 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 want a picture of a really big God who sees them and yeah. knows them, cares about them, cares about the people in their towns. They they want to hear stories of pastors who are really going for it and innovating in small town ministry because they love Jesus and they want more people to know Him. So you know those are the kinds of stories we t- we try to tell in in the podcast and through the articles. Um, we we can we can dream big. We can try hard. We can pray big, and. Yes, faithfulness is significant and important, and it might be that God chooses not to give us big results. Okay, if that's what his choice is, we'll seek to magnify him through our smallness. But we're also, we're going to be hungry. You know, we're going to, we're not going to coast. We're going to try hard. Uh, we're going to, we're going to seek best, best practice in small town ministry. And we, we have guys in New England we've connected with who are absolutely uh, on fire, the way they're reaching their communities—it's—it's it's astounding. That's great. That that reminds me of another point from your book, which doesn't. It, this applies to all of the Christian life, but it's really good to tie it to um, particularly to declining population in a town or declining attendance in your church. I think you wrote, "We need to um, want it more and need it less." We yeah. want, you know, that. By, by letting go of it, we don't become isolated and cold-hearted and indifferent to the growth of our church. Yeah. That's not, that's, that would be a worldly solution. That would be turning to bitterness and malice to guard my heart from that pain. But instead, keeping the, the compassion and ambition stirred in our hearts, but not need one result from it. To just let that grow, that desire grow, that we would pray for it more and seek it persistently but yeah. not need it to happen one time because everything we need we've been given in life uh yeah god has given us yeah. all that we need for life and godliness i think one big danger for small town pastors is that we could we could see that hey we're never gonna we're never gonna be fast moving like those big churches we're never gonna be impressive so that's all ungodly anyway that doesn't really matter anyway yeah. and and just kind of falling into a simmering I don't know, kind of laziness in some cases, uh, puttering around with hobbies, really just phoning it in and doing the least possible. That That's a real danger for small town pastors. Yeah. So yeah. I do want to call us to be hungry and to work hard. And the guys I respect who are doing small town ministry anywhere and the guys I'm most close, closely connected with are in New England. They are they are working hard and they are prayerful and they're connecting with others and they're, they're very fruitful. Now, you know, it, it might be that they do all that and God says, I want to keep your ministry small. And so the, the question is, do you need it? If, if, you, if you really try your hardest and you, you, you pray regularly and you're seeking God and he says, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm going to give you a hard ministry, then are you okay with that? Like, can you, can you deal with that? Because your, your validation is not the outward success of your ministry, but it's the gospel. 
Yeah, that's. Uh, that's <laughs> I'm just thinking of uh, Jonah because um, I'm going to be preaching from that book coming up here, and just thinking of one of the repeated lessons is especially when you're, especially vocationally in ministry. But I don't just I I've wanted to be in ministry for a long time and always thought that that was my service to God. Um, and it's amazing that uh, one of the lessons of Jonah is that God doesn't just need workers. He works on his workers. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the big yeah. lesson, the, the, the climax. And if there's a, a triumph of grace in Jonah, it's in Jonah's life and not in what Jonah was doing, not in mm. his ministry. And so mm. if you're, if you're blind to how is God shaping my heart through this dry, toilsome field that I'm laboring in, you're you're missing one of the, I mean, you are his workmanship. You're missing the work that he's doing in you, which is, yeah, is glorious. And Yeah, that's and so worth, good. Yeah. And it's recurring work, too. I just need these things every day. I need to be thinking yeah. about them regularly, preaching them to myself. Yeah. Um. Well, here for just a little bit at the tail end, um, I just want to talk with you a little bit about a message. I, you, so you weren't at the Agros conference. Well, you're, you're too big name for us to invite. Over here. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> no, no. I just, um, I, most of the other people I've asked were actually at the conference, but you were kind enough to actually listen to one of the messages and reflect on it so that you and I could talk about it and just try to promote um, for anybody listening right now to go over to our website and listen to this message. It was given by um, Bob Flack. He's a pastor uh, here in Atchison, Kansas. He's my pastor. Um, and his topic was the hidden treasure of a faithful pastor. And when I was uh, asking him to speak on that, I was just thinking of all the temptations pastors have to be um, gifted, charismatic, dynamic, professional, academic, all kinds of extra biblical and maybe sometimes good things, but get become the most important thing. Let's become, you know, a a celebrity pastor and then diminish the actual treasure of just a pastor who's being faithful to the Lord with where he's at. And I was really blessed by the way Bob took that topic and um, the message he gave just, I think, really hit that nail on the head for me. Um, it was great. I actually listened again in preparation for this. It was like, man, I should probably listen to this message once a month for the next decade or something like that. <laughs> Um, but Stephen, as you were listening to it, was there anything in particular that stuck out to you as just specifically helpful for you in a context of pastoring in a small town or yeah. maybe even broader speaking to other pastors you've met through small town summits that you thought, yeah, this message really brought a yeah. truth to bear on my life in a helpful way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a number of things. I, I, I first of all, I just thought the talk was fantastic. I'm, I'm thankful to to Bob, I could tell that, you know, he had done this with excellence and had prepared thoroughly. I, I love the fact that he quoted Mark Dever several times. Um, <laughs> and I thought even just doing that was was a, a modeling of humility and mm. um, and a small town pastor learning from a city pastor. And, uh, yeah. you know, just just the 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 way that came across was very helpful uh, for me. Yeah. Um, and then one, one of my heroes is George Herbert, and I have been really immersing myself in in Herbert for the last uh, probably five years, four or five years now, um, reading his his only prose work, The Country Parson, 
and mm-hmm. a lot of his poetry, which I have found increasingly ministers deeply to me. And so when Bob started talking about George Herbert, I was I was really happy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah. What a coincidence. Because that is one of the main illustrations of his message there is uh, George yeah. Herbert's life, which um, yeah. you can go over and listen to the message if you want to hear it. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I'd, I'd just like to bring out is a, a quote and see how you think this could be helpful. Um, maybe the way this one struck me, so you can just be thinking about this while I read the quote, is with access to YouTube, um, with as- access to podcasts, now with a lot of churches streaming um, their services because of uh, COVID, that's become very big. A lot of church members have even stopped coming to church because that's just more convenient for them. Trying to think of what makes a pastor in a small town important. You know, if you could just stream in a much better Bible teacher on a screen, why pay and submit to someone who has, you know, let's say less skill in Bible teaching or less dynamism in their public speaking or something like that. What those are some of the things I've just been thinking about as far as trying to make us ambitious for pastors and and churches in small towns. Yeah. So maybe you can be thinking about that a second here while I I'm going to read this quote from his message and you can reflect on that for me. He's speaking to church members and he says, "If your pastors are called to keep a constant and a consistent and a persistent deep look at their own life and the teaching that they're given, then seek biblical counsel from them often. Put yourselves in Christ's shoes this afternoon. How sad is it for you that having put shepherds among your people to watch over his sheep, they make important decisions by turning to unsaved relatives or an unknown or unreliable internet site or maybe worse, their own understanding, when the chief shepherd has seen to it to put shepherds around and among them. So Stephen, can you just comment on, you know, why do you think it's important for a local body to have an actual in-the-flesh pastor there, and maybe how that quote relates to it? Yeah, I think part of it's just because preaching is an act of shepherding. Uh, preaching not as entertainment, but preaching as an exchange between someone God's called and and a congregation God has called that man to. It is an act of shepherding. I and several years ago I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition called it was something like preach bespoke sermons, and I was using this word uh, bespoke. That's you know it's not a very common word, but uh, bespoke is usually it's usually. Uh, like bespoke clothing, a, a bespoke tailor, uh, you know, it's it's clothing that's not off the rack, it's not mass produced, uh, or bespoke furniture is handmade furniture, it's it's yeah. custom ordered, and yeah. the the image that came to my mind, I see, like so 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 preaching that is generating a million podcast listens cannot be bespoke preaching yeah. because it can't be too it can't be too specific to a certain place. For a certain time, it needs to be more timeless. It needs to be more abstracted, and it can still be really helpful. You know, like we we listen. I'm sure you do. I do, to um, to big name preachers, and um, and that's it's it's helpful. But uh, your your pastor in your church of seventy, eighty, ninety, hundred seventy people will know you, 
and will maybe have been uh, at the hospital when you were born <laughs> uh, or when yep. you gave birth to your child. And that that pastor, if if he's not preaching for a podcast audience of 500,000 people, but rather for you and your church, he can he can tailor those sermons to your needs and he can shepherd you through the sermon in a way that the celebrity preacher cannot. Right. And I, I, the image that came to my mind was uh, someone like, a, you know, say a bespoke furniture maker is walking through Ikea and he's, he or she is seeing all these huge racks and this huge volume and all these people going through in their big carts, you know, would that bespoke furniture maker feel anxious or jealous of Ikea? I don't think so. <laughs> because that's not the kind of work that, that he or she has been called to do. They're they're called to do fine, custom, beautiful, enduring work, not pressed particle board. Yeah. And so there's a place for IKEA furniture. We have that in our house. But there's also a place for that kind of excellent, focused, intentional, personalized uh furniture making or preaching. Mm-hmm. And so that the bespoke preaching is not to be despised either by the preacher or the people receiving the preaching. Yeah, that's right. And I just, as you're saying that, reminded of um, Paul saying that a, 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 an elder, a man who's qualified to be an elder, needs to manage his own household well because how else could he manage the household of God? And so is using fathering a home as a parallel to pastoring a church, that relationship is similar. And it struck me before, I can watch a great preacher preach and then walk away feeling like, man, I should just give up. Why am I trying to Mm -hmm. preach? Mm -hmm. I can't do it anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I've never watched a father father his children really well and think, man, I should just give up. I can't father Mm -hmm. that well. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's because I understand in fathering that relationship to my daughter, to my daughter's I have two. I need to remember that. <laughs> my relationship to my daughters is a huge part of what I'm what I'm doing there. Fathering is not just a career. It's not something that I could somehow divorce from my two daughters and evaluate and try to pursue and it, my fathering is is all well it also reminds me there in 1 Timothy 1:5 he says the aim of our charge is love the issues from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith and so if i'm studying pastoring and trying to make it make myself something out of it my whole concept of pastoring is messed up you know i should be able to watch a great pastor preach a great sermon better than i ever will and let that stir love in my heart for my church and let me think like i would when i see another father what I think is that makes me want to be a better dad. I want mm-hmm. to follow that example. I want yeah. to grow because it's my love for my daughters that makes me want to be a good father. Yeah, that's good. Similarly, that's really good. Really helpful. The love for my church should be what's, you know, eliciting any desire to improve as a pastor. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, that's helpful yeah, for me to hear. Yeah, no, that's, that came to mind as you I like the furniture one too. Those, I think, mm. go to, together really well. Um mm. Is there any other quotes? I've already taken more of your time than I meant to and more of the listener's time than I meant to. Were there any quotes that stuck out to you or anything else you wanted to mention about about that message that you think would be worth um, highlighting? Yeah, I I think just just a general comment that um, I I think the the act of delivering that 
talk, the, the clear preparation and the excellence, the, the theological focus, the, the biblical nature of it, um, the, the, the helpful quoting from other, other folks, um, demonstrates, I think, what you're trying to communicate through Agros. And that is, you can do something really well for a small group of people. Yeah. And when you know the conference is not going to be 4,000, that doesn't mean you phone it in and reuse something you've done before or, you know, do it, do a quick job the night before. It, it was really clearly well done and honoring yeah. to Christ. And yeah. that's that's what I hope I do in my preaching in my church week in, week out. That's I hope I do that when I'm serving my small group of ordinary people on a Wednesday yeah. evening. Um, yeah. It's not. It's not worse or less than because it's smaller. Yeah, that's right. Jesus says, "If two or three are gathered, there I am among them." And so, if you're preaching to him, yeah, do it like you're preaching to him because you are. He's there yeah. among us when a church gathers in his name. Yeah. So, yeah. well, Stephen, thanks a bunch. I really appreciate your time here, and I hope this um, this definitely served me. If my soul feels encouraged. I'm ready to jump back into ministry with a full heart now. I hope it was helpful to you and the listeners as well. Yeah, it was helpful to me, and and I just want to say, Joe, thank you. I, I appreciate our friendship, and I'm thankful for Agros too. I love the fact that God is doing this in your region, um, and drawing drawing pastors and churches together. So. May may God continue to fan that flame. Amen to that. Thanks, Stephen. Mm-hmm.